Thanks for tuning in. I'm Renee. And I'm Shelby. And you're listening to The Creepy Burrito. me again. If you listened last week, then you heard all about the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run and his rampant killing spree that terrorized the city of Cleveland, Ohio. But if you didn't listen, why? Why didn't you? Go back. Go back and listen. Who listens to part two before part one? What kind of maniac are you? Yeah, are you just decapitating people, ripping off their limbs? Anyway, we left off right after a letter was mailed from L.A., to the Cleveland press, claiming to be the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, and that he had moved to the Golden State of California. But there's no actual evidence that this is true, and was most likely written by some prankster who thought it was funny to stir things up. However, even though this letter turned out to be a dead end, there are some cases local to Cleveland that are almost certainly related to the Cleveland Torso murders, and are widely thought to be work of the Mad Butcher himself. Now, the Cleveland murder stopped in 1938. However, some people believed he was active in the 1940s and even into the 1950s. There were also several bodies found in the greater Cleveland area. These bodies were never officially counted in the killing total. However, the general consensus between the citizens was that these victims, in fact, belonged to the butcher. Each case was investigated to try to determine if the bodies were related. Some bodies did show signs of dismemberment, but none of the bodies were decapitated, which, as we know, is the butcher's calling card. On May 3rd, 1940, railroad workers in McKees Rocks, which is near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, were inspecting a long string of boxcars when two workers found the mutilated remains of a nude man covered with a large burlap sack. The victim had been cut up into seven pieces, and the head was missing. After searching the area further, two more victims were discovered in nearby boxcars. All three victims were estimated to have been killed about three to six months prior, and seemed to be lit on fire. Kind of like the victims found in Cleveland. It was even speculated that the murders were committed in the rail yards in Youngstown, Ohio, which is only a little over an hour away from Cleveland. Chief Matowitz was less than thrilled when he received the news about these new potential bodies, but Detective Marillo, on the other hand, was eager to tie similar murders to the same person. Upon arrival, they did have to admit that the burlap sacks used to hide the victims was something that they've seen in previous cases. However, one of the victims had the word Nazi carved into his chest. Now, this was something that they had never seen before. The M.O. of the Mad Butcher was almost ritualistic, and it was hard to believe that after almost a decade, he would change things up. Although the coroner's report showed that the victims were dismembered clean and precise, just like the Cleveland murders, Sergeant Hogan believed that the carving of the word Nazi was enough to determine that it was unrelated, the work of a copycat, with a possible personal vendetta against the victim. And again, the trail went cold. Then on July 22, 1950, 
In Cleveland, nearly 10 years later and 12 years later after the last torso murder victim was found, two men walking across an industrial area came across a decomposing severed leg. Police arrived on the scene and under further investigation found two severed arms, another severed leg, and a dismembered torso, which was decapitated. The other body parts were wrapped in newspapers that was dated from May of 1949. Unfortunately, the police officers that arrived on the scene never worked on the torso murder cases. Those who had worked on them had all been reassigned to new, more pressing cases, even including Detective Murillo. However, there was still one person around who was up close and personal with the past victims. The body was taken to Coroner Gerber, and he was surprised with the number of similarities the body had with that of the torso murders but insisted there was no proof that this crime was that of the same killer. Both Gerber and the police force were very hesitant to stir up rumors that the mad butcher of Kingsbury Run was back. After all, he was inactive for over a decade. They had hoped he was either dead or incarcerated due to some other crime, keeping him from wreaking his havoc on the city. Eventually, the victim was identified as Robert Robertson, who seemed to fit within the butcher's typical profile. He had been arrested over a dozen times for intoxication, which ultimately caused his eviction from his apartment. He also had suffered a stroke, which left him for the most part disabled with no means of work or income. In an effort to stop panic within the city, officials went about their investigation as if it was a completely separate incident, no relation to the Mad Butcher. Police asked workers local to the area if they had seen anything suspicious. Nobody had anything unusual to report, except for the workers at Norse Moving Company. They mentioned that every day for the past six weeks, a man had been coming to sunbathe out in the field where the leg was found. However, right around that time the leg was found, he had suddenly disappeared. They worried that it might be him. The workers described him as a heavyset man who seemed to be in his 50s because he had thin gray hair. This description, however, did not match the victim that was found which was reassuring to the workers, but posed another question for investigators. If this sunbather wasn't the victim, could he have been the killer? This could explain the sudden disappearance after the victim was found. Maybe he wasn't sunbathing at all. Maybe he was waiting to come across the perfect victim. After tirelessly searching and running down leads, they were unable to find anything bringing them closer to solve the case, or to find out who this mysterious sunbather was. And just like all the others, the case went cold. So we have no idea who this sunbather is? Nope. This older guy that's just hanging out in the field? Nope. No idea. Just butt-ass naked. Butt-ass naked. In the fucking field. They said that every time he sunbathed, too, he would cr- climb up some, like, metal pillars and sunbathe for, like, 20 minutes. And then what? just leave. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. Like, usually when you sunbathe, you want to do it in, like, your own yard. Yeah. Or, or like, like, a beach. Yeah. Or a park. Not an industrial park. Yeah. Weird. That's a little bit, that's a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. Now, some of you may or may not know, but where we live is an hour east of Cleveland. And although this is where this case primarily took place, it might be a little closer to home than we think. On October 6th, 1925, a man was out looking for wild ducks and other game animals in a secluded swamp area just north of West Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 miles from where we live in Lawrence County. During his search, he stumbled across a human corpse partially buried under a log. 
After he notified the police, they immediately went out to investigate. They found a man's partially decomposed nude corpse, and it was decapitated. Sound familiar? Mm. Guess what? The head was missing, too. It was determined that the victim had been killed at another location and then dumped where they found him. It was also determined that he had been dead for about two or three weeks. The body was also found pretty far away from the nearest road, meaning that the body had to be carried quite a distance to dump it, indicating that the person must have had great physical strength and endurance. The decapitation was also clean and precise. Two days later, Detective Hicks, who was working the case, went back out to search the location where they found the victim for any more possible clues. He noticed that there was a stronger odor where the body was found than on the day before. He started to explore under the log that the victim was partially buried under with a shovel and uncovered the head. During the search, they also discovered a hat, some rope, and a pile of burned clothing in separate locations nearby. Multiple photos of the decapitated head were taken in hopes that someone would recognize him and he could be identified, but no one ever did and he remained nameless. Now, what's crazy about this is this murder fits almost perfectly within the MO of the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And what's even more crazy is this body was discovered in 1925, a whole decade before the official Cleveland Torso murders ever started. So this means that this could have been one of the first Mad Butcher's killings, or at least one of the first ever found. And what's even crazier than that is this wasn't the only body found in Lawrence County. On October 17, 1925, almost two weeks later, four teenage boys from West Pittsburgh were out duck hunting near the site of where the previous body was found and found a partially hidden human skeleton. The skeleton was partially clothed, but the skull was missing. Police searched the area for the missing skull, hoping to find it like they did the last victim, but it was never located. The coroner determined that the skeleton was that of a male's, about six foot tall, and was likely to have died about four months ago. The decapitation was, yet again, clean and precise. On October 19, 1925, authorities came back to search the area again and found another human skull wrapped in a bundle of man's clothing. Initially, it was thought that it was the head of the victims that they found two days prior, but under further investigation, the coroner determined the skull was that of a third victim, belonging to an elderly woman who had been deceased for at least a year. However, the bundle of clothing the skull was found in apparently belonged to the skeleton of the man that they found two days before. Oh. Not really sure how they determined that, but okay. Yeah. A search ensued to try to locate the body of this victim. However, all they were able to find was the lower jaw of the skull from victim three, which had been missing, two sections of vertebrae, about 15 small bones, which might have been fingers or toes, a strip of dried human flesh, a blood clotted mat of hair, and a dark blue hat. The press obviously went wild with this story, even including details about the clothing found and the description of the three victims in hopes that someone would recognize something, but not much attention was given to the crime outside of Lawrence County. It was also at this time, the press dubbed this as the murder swamp. Police did everything they could from checking out missing person reports to leads on suspects, but everything turned up a dead end. There was no clear motive or victim profile, and the suspects were not identified by anyone. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and eventually the press coverage died down, and the people soon forgot about the murder swamp. Until 
July 1st, 1936. 11 years later, and a month after they found the tattooed man in Cleveland. Two railroad workers at Newcastle Junction Rail Yard in Taylor Township, Pennsylvania, were inspecting a group of boxcars that had been idled in the yard. They noticed that one of the boxcar doors was open, so they went to check it out. And what else could be inside besides the badly decomposed remains of a nude and headless corpse covered with a large burlap sack? The coroner determined that the victim was dead for about two to three months and was killed elsewhere and then dumped inside the boxcar. After a further sweep of the area from investigators, the head was never found. However, police did find three bloodstained newspapers dated from July of 1933, two of which were from the Pittsburgh Press, and one from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Mm-hmm. Investigators were unsure if the newspapers were simply coincidental or if maybe somehow it was a clue relating to the murder, to which I say, duh. It was then that the investigators in Cleveland, Ohio, started taking a particular interest in these cases and some of the previous ones in the Lawrence County area. The victims were all too similar. Nude, decapitated corpses, heads never found, being wrapped in newspaper or burlap sacks. The victims were never identified, leading investigators to believe that they were also transients or cast-offs of society, and some bodies even lit on fire. On October 13, 1939, four boys were out walking the southern edge of the West Pittsburgh murder swamp and found the remains of a headless decomposing body. When police arrived, they determined under further inspection that the body was wrapped in newspaper and burned. They even found newspapers placed in the victim's hands, apparently to try to remove the fingerprints. The coroner determined that the body was that of a small male, probably around the age of 18, and was killed a month prior, and the head was removed with a clean and precise cut. A few days later, on October 19, 1939, another railroad worker at Newcastle Junction Rail Yard discovered a dismembered head in an empty gondola car. When police arrived, they discovered the head was covered in leaves and burns, similar to the body that they found a few days prior. It was quickly determined that the head belonged to that body, and it was believed that the killer committed the murder in the swamp, or at least cut the head off at that location, and then carried the head back towards the railroad tracks and dropped it into the gondola car. Once again, the victim was never identified. Investigators in Cleveland never officially linked these cases together, although there were some similarities. The main difference between these murders and the ones found in Cleveland was that these bodies, even though they were decapitated, no other body parts were dismembered. Some people believe that these were simply works of a copycat, which may be true for, in my opinion, at least the later cases in Lawrence County. How can the 1925 murders be a copycat when they were prior to the killer in Cleveland ever officially being active? You need something to copy from to be a copycat. Right. Who's to say that it wasn't the same dude who was just starting out? Yeah, testing his waters and then moves to somewhere that has, like, more deprived people. You know what I mean? Like, hot spots where you can just scoop them up and uh, kill them. Well, and then also, like, like, maybe the dude picked that person up like on the way to here or maybe he picked them up from Cleveland and took them here to drop off their bodies maybe thinking oh well I'll go this far away 
So chances and likelihood of me being caught is slim to none, then goes back to Cleveland and goes like, shit, I don't want to make that drive again. Mm-hmm. So, or pauses and tries to formulate a plan to how he can better kill people in his own city. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the lady of the lake, she's victim zero, which they don't, they now technically count her in the killing total. Yeah. But she was found in, in uh, 1934. Mm-hmm. So this, these killings were in 1925. Yeah, so this would be like negative uh, one, okay, and right. two, and three. <laughs> and... I don't know. Yeah, sure, they weren't dismembered, but maybe he just didn't think to dismember them at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, fucking uh, Perillo and Andrassi, mm-hmm. the victims that were identified, because he, he left their hands. Mm-hmm. So maybe at that point he was like, fuck, maybe I should get rid of the hands. But unfortunately, we'll never know, as no suspect was ever charged for both the murders in Cleveland and those done here in Lawrence County. However, back in Cleveland, Ohio, they did have some suspects. In fact, one person was charged and arrested. Ooh. Now, back in July of 1939, County Sheriff Martin O'Donnell arrested 52-year-old bohemian bricklayer Frank Dolezal for the murder of Flo Palillo. Apparently, O'Donnell hired a private investigator named Pat Lyons to investigate the Kingsbury-run murders. Lyons focused the investigation on a tavern that had been frequented by Palillo. They found Dolezal was also a patron of this particular saloon, and that Dolezal had actually lived with Palillo for a while. And he was even acquainted with Andrassi and Rose Wallace, who was victim number eight. The sheriff had had his men search a room which Dolezal had previously rented, and they found a knife and a brown stain in the cracks of the bathroom floor that was theorized to be dried blood. Dolezal had actually been investigated previously by Detective Murillo, but was rejected as a suspect. Dolezal was prone to drink and at times became violent, but otherwise seemed like an okay guy. O'Donnell wanted to move fast before the Cleveland police could interfere with his investigation because he apparently thought he had more evidence against him than Detective Murillo did. Which makes sense because during the time of these murders, everyone was trying to be the hero that caught the killer. While Dolezal was in police custody, he confessed to the murder of Flo Palillo. However, his confession turned out to be a blend of incoherent ramblings. Some parts of his confession lacked many obvious facts of the case, such as location and even position of bodies, and some parts were in great detail and very precise. He later recalled his confessions, stating that they had been beaten out of him during his interrogation. But before he could go to trial, Dolezal was found dead in his cell, apparently from suicide by hanging. Oh. The five foot eight Dolezal somehow hanged himself from a hook only five feet seven inches off the floor. Hmm. Something about that just... Yeah. Math doesn't add up there. I mean, I guess it could be possible. I mean, you can if you... But usually, like, your instincts would kick in and you would just stand up. Mm Mm-hmm. And everything prior to leading up to this makes it seem suspicious. Yeah. And what makes it even more suspicious is that Gerber's autopsy revealed that Dolezal had six broken ribs and that they were not injuries he suffered before his arrest meaning that they had been attained while he was in the sheriff's custody. Yeah. 
So by this point, results came back that proved the substance on the floor of his bathroom wasn't even blood. So after that, no one really thought Frank Dolezal was the torso killer, but unfortunately left investigators nowhere closer to finding out who he was. But Elliot Ness was convinced that he knew exactly who the killer was. Cleveland surgeon Dr. Frank E. Sweeney. Now, Sweeney seemed to fit the bill perfectly. He was very tall and physically strong. He had grown up in the Kingsbury Run area, and his office was even there, and he was known to have performed amputations in the U.S. Army during World War I. Yeah, so he got that PTSD. Oh, that's the perfect Mm -hmm. killer cocktail. And he also had an alcohol dependency and became violent when drinking, which ultimately led to the separation from his wife and kids and caused him to lose his surgical residency at St. Alexis, a hospital, might I add, very close to Kingsbury Run. Ooh, I like this one. Mm-hmm. This one, I'm, I'm putting all my Franks in. But wait, there's more. Yikes. <laughs> Eventually, though, the police abandoned Dr. Sweeney as a suspect due to the fact that he was always out of town at a veteran's hospital when a body was discovered or during the time that they determined the death of the victim was. Which, to me, seems even more suspicious, but yeah, whatever. Like, is that on paper that he was, like, legit at these places? Well, also, I'm pretty sure that Dr. Sweeney being cousins with U.S. Congressman Martin L. Sweeney also might have something to do with the investigators haunting their, mm, yeah. their search on him, yeah. Back up a little bit, bro. Yeah. Pump those brakes. Mm-hmm. Mm. However, in March of 1938, something happened that made a pretty big impact on the case against him. A couple hours west of Cleveland in Sandusky, Ohio, a dog found the severed leg of a man. Now, Lieutenant David Cowles of the Cleveland Police Department remembered that the reason why Dr. Frank Sweeney was eliminated as a suspect was due to always being away at a veterans hospital that was also located in Sandusky, Ohio. He decided to take a trip down there personally to see if there was anything more to this than a simple coincidence. Cowles decided to visit the veterans hospital that Dr. Sweeney was in and started talking to some people. He found out that Dr. Sweeney had voluntarily admitted himself into the veteran's hospital to treat his alcoholism, and that the times of the visits did overlap the times when the Mad Butcher was at work in Cleveland. At first glance, it seemed as though his hospitalizations provided a perfect alibi, but Lieutenant Cowles was a pretty thorough man. He wanted to know exactly how close these patients were watched. Could it be possible that he would be able to sneak out? Turns out, The answer was no, because he wouldn't have had to sneak out, because he could have literally just walked out any time he wanted, because they weren't watched at all. Turns out, voluntary patients like Dr. Sweeney could pretty much come and go as they pleased. In fact, for an individual suffering from alcoholism, it was pretty common for them to leave to try to get their hands on some liquor, and then disappear for a day or two on a binge. Definitely the perfect alibi. It would have been no problem for Dr. Sweeney to leave the veterans hospital, travel back to Cleveland, commit the murders, and return back to the hospital without his absence being noticed or even given a second thought. After some more investigation, Cowles found his way to Alex Archaki, a convicted burglar who was serving out the rest of his sentence on the Ohio Penitentiary Honor Farm, which just so happened to share some of the facilities with the veterans hospital. 
Turns out, Archaki had a pretty interesting relationship with Dr. Sweeney. Archaki, through his various connections, kept Dr. Sweeney supplied with liquor throughout his visits to Sandusky, while Dr. Sweeney reciprocated by writing prescriptions for barbiturates and other sought-after drugs. But that's not it. Archaki told Cowles that he was even convinced that Sweeney was the Mad Butcher. Archaki said that he had met Sweeney for the first time a couple years earlier at a bar downtown in Cleveland. And it was weird to say the least. Archaki was alone when he was out of the blue approached by Sweeney, who had bought him some drinks and asked him a lot of personal questions. Mm. Where was Archaki from? Did he have any family in the city? Oh. Was he married? At the time, Archaki thought that the questions were unusual, but now sees it as Sweeney was qualifying him as a potential victim. After all, it seemed pretty deliberate that the Mad Butcher made sure that most of his victims were from out of town or had no close friends or relatives in the area. If that wasn't convincing enough, Archaki also told Cows that Sweeney's unexplained absences from the hospital coincided with the estimated times of death for several of the victims. Whenever Sweeney was missing for a day or so, a fresh body in Cleveland would turn up shortly after his return to the hospital. Eventually, the police in Sandusky determined that the severed leg found by the dog was the result of a legitimate surgery and not the work of the Mad Butcher. But that didn't matter as much since Cowles, for the first time, felt he had a really strong suspect. When he got back to Cleveland, he arranged for a very discreet investigation of Dr. Sweeney. Once Ness became more involved with these cases and heard Lieutenant Cowell's theory and investigation of Dr. Sweeney, he was also convinced that he was their man. Ness was already sure that the killer was not homeless, despite Detective Marillo's own profile. He believed that the killer had to have owned a house, or at least a private dwelling, that he could use to carry out his murders, clean the bodies, and dismember them in. He also believed that he would have had to have a car to transport the bodies before distributing them around Kingsbury Run. He was also a firm believer that the killer was a doctor or a medical man. After Ness drastically led the raid and burning of the shantytowns, he went one step further by pulling Sweeney off the streets and placed him in a hotel for 14 days where he monitored and interrogated him, all in secrecy. Allegedly, when they picked Sweeney up, he was so drunk that the first three days were to simply allow him to dry out. Once Dr. Sweeney was sober, Ness asked for Leonard Keeler, the man who invented the polygraph, to attend the interrogation and bring along his machine. For the next 11 days, the men grilled Dr. Sweeney, even polygraph tested him twice, to which he failed both times. Keeler was positive that Dr. Sweeney was a classic psychopath with a likelihood of schizophrenia. He was also convinced that they had their man. He told Ness, that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. The men were left with the conclusion that Sweeney was the killer, but they only had circumstantial evidence at best. Ness was certain that he would never get a conviction with what they had on Sweeney, especially with his high-profile U.S. congressman cousin involved, and not to mention Ness's apprehension was kind of unethical and against civil liberties at the time. So Ness was forced to let him go, and less than three months later, the two final victims were found. The ones right outside Ness's window. Oh. Also, in 1938, a vagrant worker named Emil Fronick had came to authorities saying that in 1934, a doctor tried to drug him. 
He had a hard time describing what the doctor looked like, and most of what he could describe was conflicting to Dr. Sweeney's stature. But police rode with him around the neighborhood that he claimed the doctor's office was in, but he couldn't locate anything that looked like a doctor's office, and eventually his story was dismissed. However, he was able to remember that the office was somewhere around East 50th and East 55th on Broadway Street, which later discoveries led by case expert James Bedell discovered that Dr. Sweeney's office was in a modern looking building that upon first glance, you would not recognize as being a doctor's office and was at the corner of Broadway and Pershing Avenue, uncannily close to where Fronick said the office was. But on August 25th, 1938, only two days after the interrogation, Dr. Sweeney admitted himself into Sandusky's Veterans Hospital. From there, he spent the rest of his life bouncing around from one hospital to another until he died in 1965 at the Dayton Veterans Hospital in Dayton, Ohio. We're not sure why Dr. Sweeney stayed voluntarily institutionalized for the rest of his life, but while he was in Dayton, Ohio, he sent a series of strange and mostly incomprehensible postcards to Elliot Ness, basically taunting and mocking him. They contained cryptic messages, and he signed them off with various names, such as Paranoidal Nemesis. <laughs> Even though the serial killings officially stopped in 1938, Conveniently after Dr. Sweeney institutionalized himself, Ness never quite recovered from the criticism he took for burning the shantytowns or failure to catch the killer. And although the Mad Butcher is credited for over 24 murders throughout Ohio and Pennsylvania, even some in New York I've seen, there was never enough evidence to prove that the Cleveland serial killer was responsible for those murders anywhere else. Theoretically, the case is still open. But obviously, very little, if at all, investigation efforts are pursued since it's been so long. The Cleveland Torso murders remain one of the most perplexing cases there is. Of the 12 victims, only three were ever identified, and only two of them positively identified. And no one was ever caught. Definitely feel it was the doctor. Oh, and I bet he voluntarily put percent. himself in. So, like, if they did try to go after him... He would just have his alibi. Yeah, he would right. have an alibi, but also like an insanity plea mm -hmm. or like something like well, that. Well, like, I read too. Stable. I read too somewhere, and I couldn't confirm it, but I read too somewhere that in the 1950s, after he institutionalized himself, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So, legitimately, if they were able to come after him, yeah. he would be insane. Yeah. So. And then also I read too that a lot of people theorize that the reason why he was institutionalized for the rest of his life was some sort of deal maybe that Ness and the congressman oh, made yeah. saying like, hey, I won't out your cousin. But he needs to be locked the fuck up because he's insane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and I, I feel that. It, was not, it wasn't even discovered that Sweeney was a suspect until the 1970s when a book was released. So mm -hmm. Ness actually wrote a book, like co-wrote a book with this dude, and I forget his name. I should have researched it, but whatever. And he spoke about this case mm -hmm. and uh, his potential theories and the allegations against Sweeney, mm -hmm. but had an alias name for him, like didn't use Sweeney as the name mm -hmm. just because... I'm sure the congressman was still, was still alive, alive at the time. And, yeah. And I think Sweeney was still alive. Because, yeah, mm. Sweeney didn't die 
until 1965. Yeah. And Ness died in, I think, 1957. So when writing that book, he was still alive. Sweeney was still alive, so he couldn't straight up call Sweeney out. Yeah. So that's why he used an alias for him. But then in the 70s, it was later pieced together and figured out that it was actually him. Because um, somebody found, one of Ness's relatives found the postcards. Oh, of Sw- nice. and Yeah, and it was always like straight up, like all balls, like I'm Dr. Sweeney. Here's my fucking cryptic message to you, you bitch. Like he literally, oh he would sign it off by saying like your paranoid nemesis, but also he would say Dr. Sweeney. Like he would literally sign it. But like all of it were just ramblings and mostly just things like of him being like, <laughs> you can't. You can't, you can't catch get me, me. can't get me, basically is what it is. Yeah. So that's fucking 5,000%. That, that's, that's francs. the dude. 25,000 francs. <laughs> that's him. Franks. All, All of my francs. You have room for. Dr. Sweeney. Dante. Is the weenie. Is the weenie. Who dunt it. Who dunt it. Mm-hmm. I feel it. So yeah, that's the, uh, those are the torso murders. The Cleveland torso murders. The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Which, honestly, I'm surprised is not talked about as much as it is. Right? It's so incredible that I 100% believe that they found the killer, mm-hmm. but just were not able to convict them. Mm-hmm. Especially back in, the, in those days when it was so easy to convict anybody just based off <laughs> oh, of circumstantial definitely. evidence. And I don't understand how they can't use the polygraph test as evidence i mean i know nowadays for, for the time right yeah. nowadays we that it's completely circumstantial and you can't use a polygraph to convict someone but back in the 1930s mm. i would have been totally cool with them using the like, polygraph they're fucking lying. yeah like but seriously though like i 100 percent believe mm-hmm. that that's what happened i feel it what do you guys think do let you us think know we're wrong do you think we're wrong because if so let us know but don't though. Don't though. Because we don't like us. being wrong. <laughs> I mean, we're open to suggestions. You can um, send your theories to us at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. But wait, Shelby, don't we also have a Facebook? We sure as shit do. <laughs> you can slide into our DMs or check out our sweet ass Facebook page at the Creepy Burrito. As well as Instagram and Twitter. Also at The Creepy Burrito. And don't forget to write us some sweet ass reviews on iTunes or Facebook and any listening app that you have. And we'll shout you out or maybe send you a cryptic postcard. We don't know. Mm, XXX. <laughs> a. <laughs> Isn't that what they did on Pretty Little Liars? Oh my God. Signed A. Yeah. Isn't that it? Yeah. I don't know. I watched it like twice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll send you cryptic shit because we love you. And uh, we hope you come back again to get lost in that sauce. Because I don't know. And on that note, (laughs) uh, bye now. Bye.
skeleton was partly 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 the skeleton was parsley <laughs> <laughs> it's a parsley 